Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. Probably because I teach the Bible, I get asked periodically about how to understand the Bible. I get questions all the time about a particular passage, but that's not what I'm talking about. I get questions like, how do you study the Bible? How do you understand the Bible? So what I'd like to do is give you some ideas about how you can understand the Bible. Would you like that? Would that, would that interest you? Suppose I could answer that question not from what I do personally, that would take a long time, and I'd be happy to do that sometime, but I'd like to tell you what the Bible says about how to understand the Bible. Would that be interesting? Okay. Now, in the bulletin is a piece of paper called Sermon Notes. Does everybody have a page that says Sermon Notes? If you don't, raise your hand. Whoa, a couple up here. Do we have any? Uh, all right, the ushers will be, uh, if we got some more left, we'll see. All right, in that uh, bulletin is a page called Sermon Notes. And what I want you to do is write down four words. All right, if you don't have a page, raise your hand. The usher is coming. And I don't have a pencil either. Uh Uh-oh. You're going to have to borrow one of those from a neighbor. Um, All right. Is there a pencil in that basket? No, I didn't think so. All right, we got a pen. All right, keep your hand raised. A whole bunch up here. Oh, now I know who reads the bulletin. (laughs) All right, anybody else? You don't have a... All right. Now, I want you to write on that page four words. In order to get out of this service, you must show me the four words, and they must be correct. That piece of paper is your ticket out of here. We're going to lock the doors. Glad you're laughing. (laughs) All right, I want you to open your Bible to Psalm 119, Psalm 119. That is the longest chapter in the Bible. It has 176 verses, and I'm not going to preach through all 176, so you should be relieved. But I am going to focus on one. Psalm 119, look at verse 18. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. The first word I want you to write down on that piece of paper is pray. And you might jot beside it, Psalm 119, 18. Pray. The psalmist said, Lord, Open my eyes as if he is spiritually unable to see, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Now certainly he was able to read the text of Scripture, but he's praying for understanding of the Scripture, and he's using the little expression, open my eyes, as if there's a spiritual eye that sees that the physical eye doesn't. Now, That is not a truth tucked away in an obscure psalm in the Old Testament. That is a truth that's taught elsewhere in the Bible, including the New Testament. For example, in Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes uh, a great passage of Scripture on all all the blessings that we have in Christ. He says, Blessed be God the Father who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ. And he lists them. And the list is not that difficult to understand, but he gets to the end of that 
list, and then he prays that they would understand what he just wrote. Now, they knew him. They knew him well. He'd established that church. He'd been there for three years. He's writing an inspired a letter, and yet he prays that they would understand. And all of that is because the Bible teaches that the unsaved person does not understand the things of the Word of God. They're foolishness to him. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So that even a carnal Christian, according to that same passage that spills over into chapter 3, has a difficult time understanding spiritual things. We need help in understanding spiritual truth. The classic illustration of this is Jesus said to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, who do men say that I am? And Peter gave him a whole bunch of answers that people were saying at the time. And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And he said, oh, you're the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says to Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. Now that's a very simple truth that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God. You don't have to have a lot of education to figure that out. That's plainly stated. And yet, Jesus said, it was the Father who revealed that to you. Interesting. Then he goes on to say that um, I'm going to die and be raised from the dead. And Peter says, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. In the same passage, Jesus says to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Now, he just said you got a revelation from God, and now he's calling him Satan. And he explains what he means by that when he says, what you are saying now did not come from God, it came from man and the world. So it's possible to encounter spiritual truth and interpret it in some other way than God intended, which is exactly what Peter did. Now, he got straightened out later. So on one hand, in the same passage, in one hand, God has taught him something, and in the other hand, when it comes to spiritual truth, he's picked up some ideas that didn't come from God at all. Isn't that interesting? And frankly, my personal experience is that that's exactly what happens when you're reading the Bible. You've heard things, and you read it, and you don't see what it says, you just assume what it says because of something you've heard that it meant. So you really need to pray and ask the Lord to open your eyes so you can see what is plainly there. Now he's not going to reveal something to you that's outside the scripture. I'm not saying that. I am saying that he will open your eyes to see what is plainly written on several occasions. I've grappled with the passage of scripture. I've gone to somebody else and said, I, what, what, what does this passage mean? And they pointed out to me that all I needed to do was look at the text. And they pointed out something in the text, and I said, oh, I missed that. Mm. So the Holy Spirit is going to direct you as you read the text. That's the point of this prayer. Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Now, what do you have to have to understand the Bible? Uh, I think a lot of people get the idea that you've got to go to seminary. You've got to have uh, a lot of education to understand the Bible. Now, let me just tell you something. All right, I've been to seminary. I understand all that. Well, let me tell you something. There's a difference between being seminary taught and being spirit taught. Some people that I know that didn't go to seminary understand more about the Bible than some people I know who did go to seminary. If you go to seminary, you'll be seminary taught. You'll understand the hypostatic union. What in the world is that? You probably never even heard the term. Well, there is this issue of Jesus was both God and man. So how do you put those two things together? 
and that is called the hypostatic union. How do you explain all that? And it's been a great controversy in church history. You never heard of that. If you're spirit taught, this is what you understand. You know Jesus. And frankly, that's what you need to know. You just need to know Jesus. This book was not written to teach you the hypostatic union. This book was written to teach you to know the Lord. That's what it's about. So, you know the author. Ask him to open your eyes so you can understand what he wrote. I once read a book written by a fellow I happen to know, and there were things that that book changed my mind about. I accepted his point of view, but there were things I didn't understand, and I just contacted him. And knowing the author made a difference. Knowing the author makes a difference. So just ask the author to open your eyes. All right. I want you to turn, while you're in the Psalms, back to the first one. Go to Psalm 1. This you've heard. This you know. Psalm 1 says in verse 2, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. If there is anything the Bible teaches about knowing the Bible. It's the word meditate. So the second word I want you to write down on that piece of paper is meditate. And if you wish, Psalm 1-2. Now there's a problem. When I say the word meditate, what comes to mind? You think of meditation and you automatically think of uh, Eastern meditation, where you sit and look at your navel and say a same word over and over and over, a mantra or something over and over again. That is not what the Bible's talking about. What does the Bible mean when it says meditate? The word meditate, well, is it reading the Bible? No. Is it studying the Bible? No. Now, Those two things have their place. But look at the verse. It'll tell you what meditation is. Look at Psalm 1-2. It says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His law does He meditate day and night. Now you have to remember, the Jews started the day at 6 in the morning and night at 6 in the evening. So when they said day and night, They are simply talking about all the waking hours of the day. Now, what does that tell you? That it's more than reading, because you can't read all day and all night, meaning before you go to bed. It's not studying. It's not something you do in a desk. It's not something you read in a chair or study at a desk. It's thinking about the Scripture all day long. Now, I think that assumes that you've read it, It assumes that you've given perhaps some study to it, but the basic idea is that you think about it all day long. Um, I've told you this before, but I can't come to this passage without remembering it. When I was in seminary, which was a few days ago, I uh, had a class in which I had to write a commentary on any passage in the Old Testament. And I chose Psalm 1 because it was short (laughs) and because it didn't have a context. And that passage changed my life. And what changed my life was the word meditate. I have preached on this passage of Scripture I don't know how many times, hundreds all over the country when I traveled. I used to constantly go back to this passage. You want to know the Bible? Think about it. Read it and think about it. Now there's more. I'm going to get to that. But you need to think about it. You just need to think about it. Read it and think about it. That's how I, that's a huge part of the way I understand the Bible. I just get it in my head and walk around and and I put these two things together. Matter of fact, I mentioned in the announcements I'm teaching the book of Leviticus, and I really had a struggle 
with uh, the passage I taught last Wednesday night. And as late as uh, 5.30 Wednesday afternoon, the service started at 7, I'm sitting in the office thinking, Lord, I've thought about this passage. What in the world am I going to say? And I had already decided what to say. I had a whole manuscript. Uh, and I tore it up, and I started over, and I just said, I thought about it and thought about it and thought about it and prayed and said, Lord, and all of a sudden I began to, oh, I've been going at this all wrong. And just thinking about it for several days and then sitting down and really concentrating on that passage, it dawned on me how to present the passage. I'm telling you, just read it and think about it. Lord, what are you trying to tell me? Read the context. All that's very, well, hold on. We've got to go to another passage. Let me go forward in your Bible, not backward, to Nehemiah. That's just a few books toward the front. And go to chapter 8. Let me tell you how to meditate. This is what you need to meditate on. Now, let me explain that the children of Israel were taken to Babylon in captivity. And they were there for 70 years, and the Lord let them come back under Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. So we're in that period of Israel's history where they are back in the land. And in Nehemiah, they have discovered the Scripture. So the people are listening to the Scripture being read. And it says that all the priest, uh, in verse 7, uh, helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood. And by the way, it was all day. And verse 8 says, so they, that is the priest, read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Now, what I'm talking about is how to understand the Bible. Well, this verse tells you how to understand the Bible. First of all, you have to read it distinctly. Now, what does that mean? Well, it, there's some, several impossible interpretations of it. The one I think is accurate is they translated it. As a matter of fact, later in the book, in chapter 13, verse 24, it says they didn't all understand Hebrew. Well, the Bible, the law, the Torah, was written in Hebrew. Well, they'd been in Babylon for 70 years. They were speaking what? Aramaic? Babylonian? So they're back in the land, and they found a copy of the Torah, the law, and they're reading it to them, and they didn't understand it. They like me speaking to you in German. So I would have to translate. Ah, very interesting. That says to me, you need a good translation. Make sense? The Old Testament is written in Hebrew, the New Testament is written in Greek, and what they did is they translated. So, we speak English, we need a good translation. Now, I just happen to have an opinion about that. Do you know which translation I recommend? If you don't, you don't get out until you learn this. <laughs> I prefer the new King James Version. And if you would like to know why, there's an article I've written about that on the website, the Disciples Bible Institute. It's short. There are two reasons. I prefer that over any other modern translation, and I lay all that out in that article. I'm going to spare you that this morning. I am just telling you, you need a good translation if you're going to seriously study the Bible. Now, frankly, you could take any translation and come up with a lot of good stuff. But if you're going to get meticulous and look carefully at what the text says, you need a good translation, and not all translations are good translations, and everybody agrees with that, by the way. They can't do otherwise because they all sometimes differ with each other. At any rate... You need a good translation. All right, look at verse um, 8 again. 
and they gave the sense. Now that's interesting. Uh, the idea is they gave the insight. Now, how did they do that? What did they say to give them understanding that gave them insight into the Torah? Well, let me suggest that they, um, uh, this was written about 445 B.C. The Torah was written around 1400 B.C. So there's a roughly a thousand-year gap between when it was written and when they were hearing it. So here they are, a thousand years later, listening to the Torah with Babylonian ears. So what needed to be done was to explain what? Well, uh, there's a whole bunch of things that need to be explained. Like, uh, well, there's some language involved. they, as I mentioned a minute ago, were speaking in Hebrew. Uh, the, Torah, the Torah was written in Hebrew, and they were listening to it in perhaps Aramaic. There was also some history involved. Uh, maybe there were things historically going on a thousand years ago that they needed to understand. And I'm going to suggest that the Torah is a piece of written literature and that they needed to understand maybe some of the literature. Now, what do you, did you write on that paper? Meditation? These are subpoints. So write language. That's a subpoint under meditation. You need to understand the language. Now, what do you need to do that? A good translation. Then you need to understand some history, perhaps. Uh, matter of fact, this week, Uh, I was studying the Psalms, and I came to Psalm 90, and it's a very fascinating passage of Scripture. It, It says, life is short, and it makes a big issue out of life is short. And then it says, because God's angry. And I looked at that passage of Scripture, and I thought, wow, that doesn't make sense to me. What's going on? Why does he... Put those two things in juxtaposition. Why did, what, what? And then it dawned on me, guess who wrote Psalm 90? Moses. It's the only psalm he wrote. What's happening when he wrote that psalm? They went up to Kadesh Barnea. God said, go in the land. And they said, no. We won't do the will of God. And God said, all right, you're going to die in the wilderness. And for the next 38 years, they wandered around in the wilderness, and there were two million of them, and he wouldn't let that generation go into the land and experience his blessing. So I can just imagine Moses is sitting in his tent, And every morning they come by and say, there are more bodies. There are more bodies. We had to have more funerals. There was death all over the place for 38 years. And Moses learns a lesson from that. They, life's short. And in his case, it was because God was angry. And the Bible makes no bones about the fact God was angry that they didn't do his will and they paid the consequences for not doing the will of God. And the ultimate consequence is a premature physical death. Sickness is a consequence. You don't mess around with the will of God. When you know the will of God and don't do it, there are consequences. But what made that passage make sense to me was when it dawned on me the historical setting. Everybody doesn't die because God's angry. Uh, They die because Adam sinned and death entered the world. But in some cases, people die because God is angry. Now the point I'm trying to make here is you've got to understand the history sometime. So how do I do that? Hang on, I'm going to tell you in a minute. 
The other thing you might need to understand is the very fact that it's the law. And that's a type of literature. There are other types of literature in the Bible. So to give you just one simple example, there's a proverb. A law is absolute and there are no exceptions. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's an absolute and there are no exceptions. A proverb is just that. It's a proverb. It may or may not be true all the time. So uh, it says that a glutton and a wine-bibber, I'm paraphrasing, will come to poverty. Well, there are some rich people who command to be drunks. Uh, That's a proverb. It doesn't always happen that way, but that's proverbial. But a law and a proverb are two different things. So sometime when you're reading the Bible, and by the way, people make a big mistake. They try to make laws out of proverbs. Be careful. And there are other types of literature, like a parable. Don't make a parable work on all fours. It's a story that has one main point, and sometimes there are little things in it that help, but the big issue is what is the overriding point he's trying to make. And on and on and on I could go. And you say, man, you have lost me now for sure. You just stood up there and said you got to go to seminary. No, I didn't. Suppose I could tell you how you could know those things without going to seminary. And you could know them when it's important to know them. And if it isn't important, you don't have to worry about it. Would you like me to tell you how to do that? I'm dead serious about this, by the way. You want to know? It's going to cost you. I mean money. This one's going to cost you. You've got to buy something. But you can carry it with you wherever you go. You ready? You need a good study Bible. Now, I just happen to know one I would like to recommend. As a matter of fact, I'll, I'll recommend two. Now that you got a piece of paper, you need to write this down. Number one, the New King James Study Bible. The New King James Study Bible. I, it, by the way, it's called the NKJV Study Bible for short. That, that's the title of the, of the Bible. Now, let me tell you a couple of things about that. One is, I wrote some of the notes for that book. But that's not why I'm recommending it. And I don't make a dime if you buy it. They paid me a flat fee, and I did a lot of work for them. And uh, so I'm not, this is not a commercial, and I'm really serious about that. Uh, The other thing you need to know, that it's only available in the New American Standard Translation, and I just a few minutes ago recommended the New King James. You used to could get it in the New King James, but it's out of print in the New King James. You got it, if you get it, you probably go online and get it cheap, used or something, that'd be fine. But down at the bottom of the page are notes. It is the most comprehensive study Bible. The last time I heard there were 70 study Bibles on the market. This is the most comprehensive study Bible on the market that I'm aware of. And it's the most accurate, in my opinion. That doesn't mean I agree with every note. I don't. Even some of the notes I wrote went through a committee and they changed them. Uh, But it's it's a good start. All right? Let me give you a second study Bible. If you really... Listen, when I started in the ministry many years ago, I had a list of books I recommended people buy if they really wanted to get serious about studying the Bible. And you need to buy a Bible dictionary, a one-volume commentary, and I had this little list of books. You don't have to do that anymore. Just buy a study Bible. They've done all the work for you. It's It's all in the bottom of the page. The other study Bible I would recommend is the Ryrie Study Bible, R-Y-R-I-E. It is an excellent piece of work. He was one of my professors, and that is just an excellent, excellent study Bible. Now, if you want more, if, if you had those two books in your possession, uh, it would answer virtually most of the questions you would answer. Now, if, if you want more, 
I said this last week. I'm going to say it again. You got that piece of paper? Did you write down NKJB Study Bible? Did you write down Robert Study Bible? Write down Constable's Notes. Constable's Notes. He was the head of the Bible department at Dallas Seminary. For, he taught Bible there for 45 years. And he went through every book of the Bible. He amassed notes. He did an enormous amount of research. As a matter of fact, I have a, at one point I had 3,000 books in my library and I sold most of them off. I have about 1,000 left, but they are some of the best books you can buy to help you understand the Bible. And uh, I used to think, you know, I need, I need an assistant. There's some things that's just spade work, like does the type of literature make any difference here and what is the Greek or Hebrew word here or... You know, that kind of stuff. Are there two interpretations to this verse? What are they? And I used to think if I just had an assistant, I could tell them to go through my library and figure all that out, and then I'd figure out which one I liked and how to preach it. And then I found him. It's my classmate, Tom Constable. He did it all. And it's incredible stuff. I mean, that man has read everything and put it all together in these notes. And if there are two or three interpretations, he'll tell you what they are, and he'll tell you which one he thinks is right. So if you want to dig a little deeper, just get on your computer, go to Constable's Notes at the Plano Bible Chapel, that's the pet church he pastored, and it's free! So, if you just bought one study Bible and got on the internet and read Constable's Notes, that's the name of it, you could go a long way down the road to understanding the Bible. I dare say there'd be very few passages you couldn't understand with a flip of a page and a flip of a mouse and understand it. If you come across something you don't understand, ask me. I love to answer questions. And if I don't know the answer, I'll tell you I don't know the answer, all right? I'm not going to blow smoke in your face. And I say that all the time. There are things I don't know. Can't wait to talk to the Apostle Paul. All right? So just do a little digging. So all I'm telling you is you meditate on what the Scripture says in the original language at the time it was saying it the way it said it. That was a mouthful. Did you get it? Did you write that down? Okay. How do you you understand the Bible? I have uh, four words and I've given you two. Pray and meditate. I got two more. Keep going toward the front of your Bible to the next book, the book of Ezra, and turn to chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7, and look at verse 10. Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. For Ezra prepared his heart to seek the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Word number three. Can you imagine what I'm going to say? Do it. Do it. In case you missed it, do it. Write down number three. Just go do it. Now, the one great passage in the New Testament on understanding the Bible is in James chapter 1. Matter of fact, turn to James chapter 1 for a second. I want to show you something. James chapter 1. Uh, you, know, you, you know the passage. It's that famous passage where it says, don't be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. All right. Look at uh, James chapter 1. He said, But be a doer of the word, verse 22, and not a hearer only, deceiving yourselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, 
for he observes himself and goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer. Now, the reason I had you turn to that verse, James 1.25, is because of this. It says, he looks into the perfect law of liberty. Then he says, he continues in it. Continues what? That word means to continue beside it. And a number of commentators have come to the conclusion what he's really talking about is you look at it and then you linger beside it meditating on it. And then you do it. So the three words I've given you so far are basically all in that verse. But here's the third one. You got to go do it. You got to go do it. You will never fully understand the Bible until you do it. Do you know how to parallel park a car? Do you know how to parallel park a car? Did you know that you're not required to do that to get a driver's license anymore? You do not have to parallel park a car to get a driver's license. So many people couldn't do it, they dropped the requirement. I'm serious. When I got the spinal cord injury, I had to go pass the driver's license test with hand controls in my car, and I didn't have to parallel park. They put something in its place. You have to get along the curb and back up 50 feet or something like that. Now, let me ask you a question. How many manuals would you have to read to really understand how to parallel park a car? How many lectures would you have to hear to know how to parallel park a car? How do you learn how to parallel park a car? You go do it. Now, you need to read the manual. And it helps to have a teacher. But you're not going to really get it until you do it. Now, hear me, and hear me well. There are people who know a lot of the content of the Bible, but they don't understand it. And that's because they don't do it. It's in the doing that you really get an understanding of the Word of God. You've got to go do it. All right, most sermons have three points, and I've just given you three. Got it? Can you give me those three words? Pray. What was the second one? What's the third one? Oh, music to my ears. Well, then you got it, right? So we're at the end of the sermon, right? Not by a long shot. I got a fourth word, and then I got some things beyond that. You ready? What's the fourth word? Can you guess? It's in Nehemiah 7.10. Teach. He said he prepared his heart to do and to teach. You really want to know this book? Go teach it. Now, uh, I don't know how many times uh, I have studied a passage by the hour, and I've done all those things I told you to do and more. Then I taught it. And somebody that didn't go past high school came up and asked me a question and I thought, good night, how did I miss that? It's when you teach it that it really sticks. You want to learn? You teach. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God says, these words shall be in your heart and you shall teach them <laughs> diligently to your children. All day long, when you get up in the morning, when you walk around, when you go to bed at night. So every parent is a teacher. You say, well, I don't have kids, or my kids are grown and gone. Then what do I do? Yet teach somebody else. Let me give you the verse that applies to you if you don't have kids. Joshua 1.8. He says, I want you to meditate in this book that 
you may observe to do. But he says in that verse, this book of the law shall not depart out of your, you know what the next word is? Mouth. I would expect him to say, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mind. But it isn't. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. Talk about it. Talk about it. Talk about it. That's why it is so important that you go to the app class. And that was a commercial. (laughs) And I'm dead serious. One of the finest things we've done around here is get a little class. After the service, we'll go eat. Then go to that class and sit around and talk about your experience with spiritual truth. There is no finer way to learn spiritual truth. Amen? Amen. And amen. All right. Did you get all four words? You have a ticket out of here. Four words are pray, meditate, do, and teach slash talk. All right? I'm not done yet. I have two things to say. And then I'm done. Number one, what's really critical is your attitude. That's hinted at, not said in these verses. He wanted to, he said his heart, he prepared his heart. That was in the verses we looked at. You've got to have the right attitude. If you come to this book with the wrong attitude, you're never going to learn it. You're never going to learn it. So, by the way, that's true of anything, isn't it? Attitude is everything. Now, let me give it to you from one of the most brilliant scholars I ever had the chance and the good fortune to sit in his class. Dr. Bruce Walkie is a Hebrew scholar. He's recognized now as one of the foremost evangelical Hebrew scholars in the country. He has two doctorates, one in Greek from Dallas, one in Hebrew from Harvard. And I got him just after he graduated from Harvard. It was a nightmare. The man's so brilliant, he had no idea what it was like to be of average intelligence. Uh, It was terrible taking a classroom. But a godly man, godly man. Uh, He um, was on the translation committee for the New American Standard and the NIV. We'll forgive him for that. You're supposed to laugh. He wrote 16 books, including a massive book on Genesis and one on Proverbs, two volumes on Proverbs. Then he wrote a 1,040-page book on the theology in the Old Testament. And in that book, he talks about what I'm going to call the attitude with which you come to the Bible. He talks about the different kinds of Christian attitudes you can have. And here's what he says. One is you can be above the Bible. He says that's the position of liberal theologians who put reason above revelation. Number two, you can be before the Bible. That's the attitude of a neo-Orthodox theologian who says that as the Bible is preached and you experience it, it becomes the Word of God. So you're really saying, I'm before it, waiting for it to speak to me. The third attitude is to be alongside the Bible. This is the attitude of the traditionalist. Actually, Jewish rabbis took this position. I had a conversation with an Orthodox Jewish fellow within the last six months or so, year, and, and he said to me, very knowledgeable about the Torah, and he said to me, if it weren't for the Talmud, we wouldn't understand the Torah. He readily admitted 
that we have to have something to explain it. That's the attitude of some uh, Jewish rabbis. It's the attitude of the Roman Catholic Church. We have to have tradition to explain the Bible. It's the attitude of the Orthodox churches. that You have to have something like tradition, which is what the Talmud and the Midrash is all about in Judaism, so that you can understand the text. So you're putting yourself alongside the Bible. The fourth view, he said, is to be on the Bible. He called that the practice of the fundamentalist who assume that their interpretation represents the truth and they do not stand under the Bible long enough to understand it, he said. And having come from that uh, environment, I understand what he's saying. Can you guess what he said is the right attitude? Be under it. He called it the position of the evangelical, which he says he is. And so he says, and I quote, the infinite mind is in the finite mind is incapable of coming to finite truth, and moreover is depraved. To live wisely, I need the inspired revelation of the divine reality by which I can judge the wisdom or the folly, the right or the wrong of my thoughts and actions. Amen. We are depraved creatures, even though we know the Lord. And we come to the text blind, in darkness, and we need the light of the word of God so that we can understand what is wise and what is stupid and what is right and what is wrong about our actions and our attitudes. So we need to be under the text. It's the authority above us. So we're not above the text. We're not beside the text. We are under the text. And if you do not come to the Bible with that attitude, you will never fully comprehend what this book is about. I have one more comment. This book is not complicated. This book is very plain spoken. This book has some very simple truths in it, and you don't need, you don't even need to be able to read to understand this as long as somebody tells you what the text says. So let me give you some examples. This Bible teaches there's a God who created the heavens and the earth. That's verse 1. Do you have to have a seminary degree to understand that? No. If you understand that, a lot that follows makes a ton of sense. If you understand that God is the creator, you got it. Then you can understand how he could create a big fish for a man to live inside of for three days, and that's not a problem. If he could create the world, for crying out loud, he could create a big fish. Make sense? Another truth in this book, it's all simple. God has a son. His name is Jesus. He died on a cross to pay for sin and arose from the dead. And if you trust him, you get the gift of eternal life. You don't have to work. It has nothing to do with the way you live. It has nothing to do with the kind of church you go to. It's all based on whether or not you trust Jesus Christ. Now that's as simple as it gets. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever... Hey, you're doing pretty good. You got that much? Man, you are making great progress in understanding the Bible. Now, what beyond that do you need to understand? Well, God makes a little bit of an issue out of, I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me. I want to be your shepherd. I want to meet your needs. Did you hear that? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That's what he wants us to learn. And we go to others to get our needs met. And we get angry when they don't meet our needs. The Lord wants us to come to him to meet our needs. Amen? One of the finest commentaries on that verse I have ever heard in my life. I didn't hear until after I preached it. And Teresa sent me a note written by her mother. Her mother's note said, The Lord is my shepherd. That's all I want. Oh, that's what this book is about. 
That's what this book is about. God wants us to know Him. He wants to be our God. He wants to meet our needs. And you don't need a seminary education to understand that. You don't need to know Hebrew. You don't need to know Greek. You don't need to know theology. You need to know Jesus. And I know all of those. That's not what counts. You need to know the Lord. Amen? So let me give you another scholar. What many think is the greatest theologian of the 20th century was a theologian named Karl Barth. He is the famous uh, founder and promoter of neo-orthodoxy. I don't agree with his theology, but boy, did he have a brilliant idea. He wrote a commentary on the book of Romans, 13 volumes. He wrote it from 1932 to 1967. Then he wrote 36 books. He was once featured on the front page of Time magazine. Pope Pius XII said that he was the greatest theologian since Thomas Aquinas. Now, Bart is going to explain to us what you need to know about the Bible. He's going to explain to us the most profound thing you can know about the Bible. As I've been Understand he was being interviewed by a reporter in Chicago, and the reporter said, Dr. Bart, what is the most profound thought you've ever had concerning the Bible? And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. Now, my friend, what you need to understand about the Bible is that Jesus loves you. And then you need to stand under his word to let him teach you how to be really happy and fulfilled. Amen? Amen. Bow your head. We're going to sing a song in a minute, but I want you to meditate. Before I pray, I want you to think. How are you going to, what are you going to do with what I've said today. Have you been consistently pouring over the scripture, thinking about it? Is there a time when you can read it? Maybe the decision you need to make is I'll go buy a study Bible. Or when I have a question, I'll go look at Constable's notes. But before we sing, uh, just uh, take a minute. Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that guides us into all truth. And Lord, forgive us for not paying more attention to it, depending on you to obey it and really manifesting it to others. So Lord, speak to us today in Jesus' name.